This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. But today, I want to talk to you about a, a fantastic topic, and it's a topic of happiness and friendship. And I'm going to use as a kind of schema for my remarks uh, the insights drawn from Robert Spitzer's terrific book called Healing the Culture. If you haven't read his book, I really do suggest it, because I'm going to draw a lot on the book and add some of my own insights. And what, what Spitzer points out in his book is that there are really different kinds of people who seek happiness in different sorts of ways. And he categorizes them in four general kinds of people. So first, we'll talk about the hedonist. So if you're a hedonist, you seek happiness, and you seek happiness through bodily pleasure. And you think the best life is to have as much bodily pleasure as possible. So you might do this through drinking alcohol, or taking drugs, or having sex, or eating lots of good food, or lying in the sun like a pig. But you think that this is going to be the best life for you. Secondly, we could talk about a second level of happiness, uh, call this person the egoist. And the egoist seeks happiness, seeks meaning in life, through being better than others in some sort of competition. So I know at the University of Oregon, this is a huge track place. So maybe you're great at track. And so you say, I'm going to find my happiness through being the best you know, miler at University of Oregon or the best miler in the Pac-12 or something. And that's how you'd find your happiness. Or maybe if you're in business, you might say, I need to find my happiness through landing a job at, um, uh, what's a great financial place, Goldman Sachs or something. I'm going to get my job there and then I'm going to be really happy. If you're an actor, maybe you are going to be in a big movie. But the basic idea is that you find your happiness through being better than others in some respect. Level three people for Spitzer are people that find their happiness through serving others, through helping others. And they find their meaning and their joy in life through, through this sort of service. We could call this the altruist. And then the final person I'll talk about, I'll call the altruist of faith. And they're similar to the altruist. They find their happiness through love, but they add to it not just love of other human beings, but also love of God. Now, these four levels of happiness do not need to be in competition. You could have all these levels of happiness working together, and that's really an ideal situation. So let's say you're eating food right now so that you cannot be hungry and dizzy when you go to uh, your next class. And you're in that class because you want to be the best student there because you want to get into medical school, and you want to get into medical school because you think this is a wonderful way to serve other people, right? If you're a terrific doctor, think how much help you can be to people. People come to you sick, they've got physical problems, mental problems, and if you're a great doctor, you can really, really help them. And then you could even throw in level four. You say, well, why do you care about being a doctor? Why do you want to serve people? Well, maybe you think that every single human person is made in the image and likeness of God. So you could, right, have all four of these levels all working together. But the fact is, very often, we have to choose. And we cannot have level one, level two, level three, and level four all working in harmony. In fact, sometimes we have to choose, for instance, between level one and level two. And all of you face this, I'm guessing, almost every day, right? The alarm goes off, right? Seven in the morning, 7.30, whatever. You got an eight o'clock class. And you have to choose. Am I going to stay nice and comfortable in the warm bed, get more level one happiness? Or am I going to get out of bed, put on my clothes, go to campus, try to get a good grade so I can get into graduate school, right? More level two happiness. Same thing's true with level two and level three. Those levels don't have to be in competition, but they can be. So let's say you are a level two person and you think, well, I want to find my happiness through uh, making lots of money. Now, there are ways in which making lots of money can contribute to level three happiness. In other words, you might make lots of money by serving others, by providing a great product or a great service that people really value and then they pay you and it's a win-win situation. On the other hand, there's ways of making money that go against loving and serving others. For instance, being dishonest in business dealings or being a hitman, right? That's obviously going against level three happiness. So given the realities of human life, right? We have to choose, at least sometimes, either level one or level two, either level two or level three, either level one or level three. Think about, say, someone who's driving drunk, right? They want their level one happiness. They want to get really drunk. 
And yet, if they drive drunk, they're going against level three because that's being unfair and not loving and not just to everybody else on the road. So often we have to choose. So how do we choose? Well, we can think about each level of happiness in a little bit deeper way. And so I want to start off my talk by, by doing that. Let's think about level one happiness to start with. Level one happiness has some serious advantages. One of those advantages is that it comes on really quickly. So think about when you're really hungry and you sit down for a nice dinner. Right away, on the very first bite of the food, it's terrific. It tastes super good, right? Similarly, if you drink alcohol, right? If you drink a bunch of alcohol, you don't have to wait three days to see if it has an effect, right? You probably feel something within, what, five, 10, 15 minutes. So level one happiness has a big advantage of it arriving quite quickly. Another big advantage of level two is that level, or level one rather, is that it's relatively easy to get, right? So how, how many people here would have trouble finding alcohol tonight if they want to go get, drink some alcohol? You have trouble? You don't have any friends that are 21 that could, could buy you alcohol? You don't, all right, well, maybe you could make a new friend. <laughs> Similarly with drugs, how hard would it be tonight if you really wanted to, to find marijuana, cocaine, whatever? Not that hard. Same thing's true with sex. Not that hard to find. So if you have level one happiness, one of the advantages, it seems to be, is that it's quite easy to get, right? It's not a lot of effort, right? You can find it pretty much more or less at will. So there's definitely something attractive about level one happiness. And as uh, rational animals, the animal part of us definitely wants to be hungry or to be full and not hungry, right? To have drink and not be thirsty, etc. But Spitzer points out, and I think he's totally right, that there's much more to a thorough analysis of level one than just these positive aspects. So what are the negative aspects of level one happiness? Well, level one happiness, as I say, comes on quite quickly, right? If, you eat a che- if you're hungry and you eat a cheeseburger, right away you have the good taste. But when you're done eating, the good taste is basically gone, right? So it comes on quickly, but then it also goes away quickly. Moreover, isn't it true that we as human beings want more than just level one happiness. No one is truly satisfied simply with bodily pleasure, right? Because we want more than bodily pleasure. In fact, there's only two kinds of human beings that are, that are satisfied with just level one happiness, just bodily pleasure. The first are babies, right? A newborn baby, all the newborn baby cares about, right, is being warm, being cuddled, having enough food. That's all that the baby cares about. Babies are not concerned. They're not in the nursery looking around saying, am I better than that baby? (laughs) Am I more athletic? Am I better looking? Do I have more friends? The babies don't care at all about any of those things, right? All they want is their level one. The other group are hardcore addicts, right? You read about people, hear about people that are just desperate for their drugs or their alcohol, the kind of people that would drink aftershave, right? They're so desperate for alcohol, they'll do anything to get it. Well, they too seem to not really care much about level two, three, or four. But outside of, say, newborn babies and hardcore addicts, everybody else wants more than just level one happiness. It's not enough. It's not enough. So everybody virtually gets out of a pure level one and moves into level two. And level two, as I said, is the level that you could call the egoist. It's all about being better than others in some respect. And there's different games we can compete in. So maybe your game is to be a great athlete, and that's really what you care about. You want to be the best athlete in the school, right? And your game is to have the most social media followers, right? And you spend all the time on you know, Instagram, and you want to get as many followers as possible, et cetera, et cetera. And then maybe yours is music. You want to be this terrific musician and be the greatest musician ever. And maybe yours is money, right? You want to make a billion dollars and be the next uh, big donor to the University of Oregon and you know, whatever. So there's different ways you can compete. But is level two going to be successful? Well, again, there's pluses and minuses, right? Well, the plus of level two is that it is more long-lasting than level one. If you become a famous musician, if you're a you know, YouTube star, if, if you're a great athlete and win gold medals, if you're uh, the next uh, Elon Musk or Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos or whatever, and you have billions of dollars, well, that's a more lasting thing than eating a cheeseburger, right? I mean, that's, you have it and it's gone immediately. 
And it's also better than level one because it doesn't have the same risk of addiction. So one of the huge downsides of level one is addictions of various kinds, right? If you're an alcoholic, you're a drug addict, this is gonna really ruin your life, obviously. And part of the reason it ruins your life is it takes away your freedom, right? Anyone, if you know anyone who's addicted, they'll say they are lacking in freedom. They don't feel free anymore. They're basically bossed around by and controlled by their addiction, or they can be at least, or at least they can feel that way. But level two, by contrast, isn't at least physically addicting the way, say, drugs or alcohol can be, right? You can make lots of money, and you might be psychologically attached to it, but you're not going to go through withdrawal symptoms the way you would if you were a drug addict or something. So that's a big advantage. Secondly, there's big social advantages. So we recognize and honor level two success. So if you're a terrific athlete, right, you might get an award at graduation. If you're a great musician, if you are uh, a wealthy donor, right? But at the University of Oregon, I doubt they give uh, honors for level one at graduation, right? Congratulations, Bill. You drank the most beer of anyone in the graduating class. That's amazing. Wait, that's a fantastic accomplishment. 12.8 beers a night. That's really super. Well, no, I mean, of course they don't do that, right? So we honor people that are level two successes, right? We say, hooray, way to go. And in particular, we tend to honor people that are very wealthy, right? That tends to be probably more than any other, more than sports and more than being popular. It seems to be that is something that really garners a lot of respect. And so we can consider the question, well, will more money really, in fact, make us more happy? And this is a question that has been studied empirically. There's lots of empirical research in this whole field of positive psychology looking at the relationship between money and happiness. And here's what they found. They found that if you are extremely poor, if you do not eat three meals a day, if you don't have a warm bed to sleep in, if you don't have shoes for your feet and you're walking around barefoot and stepping on broken glass, more money will make you a lot more happy. So once you give people enough money that they do have three meals a day and they have warm clothes and they have shoes and you know, they have a place to sleep, that significantly increases their happiness. But basically what they found is after that, there's really no increase in people's overall happiness with getting more money. And the reason is fairly simple, that no matter what level of money you make, what happens is people very soon become accustomed to that. So when I was in graduate school at the University of Notre Dame, uh, I was only making $10,000 a year. And I was married, and at the end of graduate school, I had three kids. So it was five people living on $10,000 a year. Now, this was a while ago, but still, even back then, that was, that was not much money. We were very, very poor. So then when I got my first job, I was making $36,000 a year. And I thought, man, I am loaded. I'm just so rich. I just remember thinking, this, I, I couldn't believe it. I went out and like, bought furniture, and I was like, wow, I've really hit the big time. I can buy a couch now. And you know, we used to have to get things off the side of the road, and now, now I'm really, really doing well. But really, after maybe six months or so, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm just used to this. This is the new normal, right? And that glow or that buzz or whatever kind of wore off. Or here's something you could ask yourself. Think about your last birthday. Right? And if your birthday was last week, think about the birthday before that. Your birthday a year or two ago, in other words. And you probably got some gifts, and you might have been super excited. But are you still excited about that? I mean, do you wake up and say, oh my gosh, I've got this brand new iPhone. Well, now it's no longer a brand new iPhone, right? It's two years old, right? The, the excitement and the joy of things just kind of effervesces and fades away and you no longer feel that same joy. And the same thing is true whatever level of money you have, once you're out of serious poverty. So they pull people that make $70,000 a year, $700,000 a year, $7 million a year. No significant difference in their self-reported happiness. Just doesn't make any difference. And you can see why, because money, as Aquinas talked about, you know, cash and checks and things, that artificial wealth, is for the sake of what he called natural wealth. And what's natural wealth? Natural wealth would be things like, say, food and clothes. But there's a natural limit on how much natural wealth you can really use, right? I mean, you can't eat, I'm guessing, 30 hamburgers a day, right? You can only eat 
you know, three, maybe four. I don't know, maybe you can eat three, but most people can't, right? There's a limit to it. I mean, do you need 400 pairs of shoes? I mean, that would be more a headache than anything. I wouldn't know which shoe to pick, and I'd have to ask my wife, and she, she would know which shoe to pick. But, um, <laughs> but having tons and tons of those things just doesn't really work. So more money, according to all available empirical research, does not equal more happiness. Once you're out of serious poverty, that is. Once you're out of serious poverty. What about power? Same thing's true. Whatever level of power and success you get, it might feel thrilling at first. Whatever level of prestige you get might be thrilling at first, but then you get used to it. Think about when you first learned that you, were, you got into this university. I bet you were thrilled. You're like, this is amazing. Great university. It's beautiful. Wow, I'm so excited. But did you wake up this morning and say, wow, I got into this university. I'm so excited. This is amazing. No, I doubt it. I'm sure when uh, a new president comes into the White House and sleeps in the White House for the first time, they must do a jig walking across the floor and dance and get out of bed. And This is totally amazing. But do you think a year or two into the presidency, they, they do the same thing? No, it's totally used to it. Just, uh, just everyday normal stuff. And that's even for the president of the United States. The fact is, no matter how high you get on whatever hierarchy you're climbing, whether it's a sports hierarchy, social media hierarchy, power hierarchy, it doesn't matter. However high you get, there's actually always something higher. And you might say, well, no, what if you're president of the United States? Haven't you reached the top of the, at least the political hierarchy? It is. But don't you think the president of the United States compares himself to other presidents? It says, well, am I as good as, you know, Abraham Lincoln? Am I George Washington? And they have to say, if they're honest, uh, well, not quite, right? You haven't quite reached that. And even someone who was the best in his own field, I'm thinking here of Michael Jackson. So Michael Jackson, as you may know, had this album called Thriller. And Thriller sold more copies than any other album of all time. And in fact, it was so many copies it sold that if you added up the second most best-selling album, which was Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon, and the third best-selling album, and he put those together, they still were less than Thriller. So it wasn't just that he won, he like won by a mile, right? But Michael Jackson was asked about this, and here's what he said. He said, well, after Thriller, I spent the rest of my career trying to outdo Thriller. In other words, even the guy who was actually number one, and number one by a mile, did not find lasting satisfaction in that. So you might say, okay, fine, level two doesn't satisfy. It's not a lasting, you know, it's not, it doesn't give you lasting happiness. But what if you combine it with level one, right? What if I have massive, massive doses of uh, level two, I'm very popular, I'm wealthy, I'm famous, I'm up the hierarchy of whatever hierarchy you want to climb up, and I combine that with lots of level one. I have lots of sex partners, I have lots of drugs, I have lots of alcohol. Well, we've run this experiment thousands of times, and we have a whole category of people that fall into this cast, and they're called what? Celebrities. <laughs> right? I'm from Los Angeles. I know all about this. Right? What is a celebrity other than someone who has a mega dose of level one bodily pleasure, or at least they can, and a mega dose of level two ego satisfaction. And is it the case, from what you understand of celebrities, that celebrities all are really happy? You ever hear of a sad celebrity? Did you ever hear of a celebrity who killed himself? That is a pretty good sign you're not super happy, right? I don't think many people that are filled with joy then decided to kill themselves. And yet you do find that. Right? You find people that are way more wealthy probably than any of us will ever be, certainly more famous on the cover of magazines, in movies, people that have sex as much as they want with as many people as they want, people that take as much drugs as physically possible, people that drink more alcohol you know, than probably any of us could, and yet they're miserable, even suicidal. It's really sad. So we have the best possible evidence from repeated experiments, that level one happiness, even in massive mega doses, 
And level two happiness, even in massive megadoses, does not, in fact, deliver on lasting happiness. So, what then is left? Well, what's left is level three and level four happiness. So, what is the happiness of the altruist? The happiness of someone who finds their joy, finds their meaning, who finds their goal in life to love, serve, and appreciate others. Well, what does that mean, really, to love others? Well, I think Aquinas had a good definition of that, where he, he talked about love of others as willing the good of the other for their own sake. So loving someone is not like a pig, or a farmer, rather, who's fattening up a pig to sell the pig at, at auction. Right? That's not really love. That's just the farmer's self-interest in making a lot of money by selling the pig. Real love is when I care for you for your own sake. I want you to have a good life. For your sake, not for my sake, for, for your sake. So love involves this goodwill. But love is more than simply goodwill, because you could do something good for someone and yet not really love them. Love involves something more than just goodwill. It involves appreciation. So if you really love someone, what that means is you recognize the reality, the truth of who they are, and the reality and the truth of what's good about them. So if I really love you, I can't love you as the Queen of England, right? Because you're not the Queen of England. And if I loved you and appreciated you, you're a great queen, you do a wonderful job, and you raised Prince Charles so well, way to go, queen. Well, that's not, you're not a queen, right? You're not, you're not the queen of England. So I'm not really appreciating you. To appreciate you, I have to know you and I have to know your reality, right? I have to know whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is just, whatever is pure. If there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, that is what I would focus on. And that would be different for each one of you because no two people here are exactly alike, right? You have talents she doesn't have and she has talents you don't have. So if I'm really going to love you, I have to get to know you. Knowledge and love go together. I can't really love someone properly unless I know the reality of who they are. And then finally, love involves unity. If I love someone, I'm unified with them. So you want good things for yourself, and if I love you, I also share and am unified with you in wanting good things for you. And if I love you, I want to be unified with you and do shared activity with you. And depending on the person, there'll be different kinds of shared activities. So you might do jujitsu together. You might be in a band together. You might study for a class together. There's all kinds of things you could do. You might watch football games together. But the idea in loving someone and being friends with them is that you have this shared activity with them. And so a level three person finds their happiness in loving others. That's how they find their happiness. And the secular psychology folks, the people in positive psychology, uh, have studied this extensively. And they, the most famous study that they did was called the Grant Study. So they started with college students, you know, 20-year-olds or so, and they studied them all the way through their lives. So the study went on for decades and decades. It only ended when people were in their 90s. And the lead researcher of this Harvard grant study was asked, well, what'd you find in studying all these people over years and years and years? What was, what was the, the main takeaway? And what he said is this. He said, happiness is love, full stop. Happiness is love, full stop. That was the takeaway. The people who had loving relationships, they loved their family, they loved their mom, they loved the people they work with. Maybe they're married, they love their spouse, they love their kids. But the people whose lives were filled with loving relationships, that had really close friends that they really cared about and who cared about them, those people had the best lives. Those people had deep happiness. It's not about having tons of money or tons of power or tons of fame or tons of sex or tons of booze or tons of drugs. As we know from the celebrities, those things don't deliver. But what does deliver is having love, having deep friendships, having people that care about you and you care about them, and you're together doing activities with them and you're sharing your life with them. So if we're going to be level three people, what does that involve? Well, that involves following what Thomas Aquinas called the first principle of practical reasoning. And that was to do good and to avoid evil. So level three people do good for themselves and others. And 
they have goodwill for themselves and others. And therefore, they avoid the opposite of that, right? What's the opposite of having goodwill? Having bad will, evil will for someone. So rather than willing that you be healthy, I will that you be sick or even die, right? Well, rather than willing that you have friendship, I will to isolate you, to ridicule, ridicule you, to undermine your social well-being. So level three people seek what's good for others and therefore avoid what's evil for others. And so you can see how Aquinas thinks the natural law follows from this quite straight away. That is to say that we shouldn't kill. Why? Well, that's contrary to having goodwill for others. It's contrary to love. It's contrary to justice. We should not steal. We shall not commit adultery. We shall not bear false witness. All the Ten Commandments for Aquinas are precepts of natural law. It's when God gives us these laws, it's not that God is saying, I'm going to cramp your fun. I'm going to limit your freedom. And I have these random rules, and I'm just going to you know, put them down on you just to kind of make your life difficult. Well, no, those rules are given to us, at least Aquinas thinks, for our own good, for our own happiness. It'd be a little bit like if you cared about your health. You said, look, I don't want to die of cancer. Right? My parents died of cancer. Cancer runs my family. And I go to the doctor, hey, I don't want to die of cancer. What should I do? And the doctor said, well, I'll give you some rules. Right? Keep your weight at a healthy level. Don't get obese. Right? Don't smoke. Right? Don't lay in the sun for you know, weeks and weeks with no sunscreen and get skin cancer. And the doctor would give me these rules not to limit my fun and limit my freedom, to, you know, but to help me. Because I want to avoid this terrible situation of getting cancer and dying. So the rules of that Aquinas talks, these basic principles of natural law, are for our own happiness. Because we can't find real happiness in doing these things that are evil. We're undermining our own well-being. We obviously can undermine our own well-being in terms of our physical health. Everybody knows that eat a bunch of bad food, never exercise, etc. we all know our health will go to the toilet eventually. But the same thing's true of our spiritual health. The same thing's true of our happiness. And then what is level four happiness? Well, level four happiness is similar to level three insofar as it involves loving other people. But it adds to that loving God. And Aquinas thought you couldn't really have love of God without love of neighbor. And the reason he thought that was that he said... If you really love God, you are going to love the image of God that you find in other human beings. And if you say you love God and you don't love the image of God, well, there's a kind of contradiction in that. How does love of God or how does level four augment level three? Well, one thing that you'll find out if you try to live level three happiness, if you really try to do good and avoid evil, you really try to love other people, be fair to them, you try to make their lives better, one thing you'll discover very quickly is that you're going to fail. If you try to be a good person, you're going to notice, oh, geez, I was kind of rude to that person. Oh, man, I you know, messed up in this way or that way. I said something that hurt their feelings or whatever. There's going to be all kinds of things you do. And part of level four that is uh, augmenting that is that, at least Aquinas thought, there's a way of rectifying these sorts of failures. Human beings are a little bit, uh, well, think about just everyday life, right? You have to eat food, right? And when you eat food, I would say not always, but typically, often, you leave some garbage over, right? Like if you eat a banana, you got a banana peel left over. And what would happen if you just threw the banana peel in the corner, right? And then the next day threw that, you know, cheeseburger wrapper in the corner. And then you just kept on throwing the garbage in the corner. You never took the garbage out, just piled up there, week after week, month after month, year after year, and you're going to have a huge pile of garbage there. And that's the kind of guilt that a person who's trying to love other people and trying to be a good person and trying to be a real friend to others accumulates. And yet we have a way, Aquinas thinks, of taking out the garbage, a way of starting over, a way of clearing the decks of all this garbage that we've created in our lives. And for Aquinas, that is confession. That's this opportunity to take out the garbage, to start over, to rectify the ways in which we've not lived the way we ought to live. For Aquinas, too, as good as human love is, human love is always imperfect. There's no human being who is perfect truth. Everybody 
is imperfect in terms of that. There's no human being who's perfect goodness. We all have faults and foibles and some vices. There's no one who is perfectly beautiful. And yet that's exactly what the human heart seeks. Our will seeks what is good. But our will can never find something perfectly good here below. And our mind seeks perfect truth. But every truth we find here is fragmented and partial. And we seek after perfect beauty, but that too eludes us. And so Aquinas thought, and here he follows Augustine, that our hearts are restless until our hearts rest in perfect truth, perfect goodness, perfect beauty, and that is what he thought of as God. So level four happiness for Aquinas is the greatest form of happiness. But even that is, you might say, really imperfect, because after all, we can't always be loving people, and we can't always be loving God. We get sick, and we have bodies that are fragile. And so he thought absolute perfect happiness was to come, was not possible in this life. But in a way, you might say, both heaven and hell do begin in this life. And you may know people that are already maybe in the beginnings of hell, right? Do you know anyone who is unbelievably bitter? Do you know anyone who just finds fault in everyone? Do you know anyone like that? They're filled with anger all the time. Filled with hatred, lacking love. They have self-willed loneliness. These are all ways of thinking about the same kind of condition of alienation, lacking level three and level four happiness. And then you might know people that are the opposite of that. People that are already in the beginnings of heaven. They have heaven right now, albeit imperfectly. They're filled with love for other people. They're filled with joy. So how does this relate to friendship? So I talked about four kinds of happiness. Now I want to talk about four kinds of friendship. So it's possible to have a level one friendship. Aristotle talked about this as a friendship of pleasure. And if Aristotle's right, what's going to happen with a friendship of pleasure is that it's going to be short-lived. And part of the reason for that is that what we take pleasure in tends to shift over time. So if you think back to when you were 10 years old, you might have taken great pleasure at I don't know, playing on a jungle gym or something. Now, at 22 years old, I doubt many of you went to the jungle gym today and slid down the slide and, oh, you did? Okay. Well, most of you, most of you didn't do that. Um, Some of you apparently do, but most of you don't do that anymore. And maybe in a few years, if you get married and have children, you will take great pleasure in uh, tickling your daughter and chasing around the house playing monster and flipping out her pacifier things like that. And maybe that's not your cup of tea right now, but if you have a child, it will be your cup of tea. You'll love it. You'll think it's super fun to do all that kind of stuff. So what we take pleasure in really does shift over time. So if my pleasure, or if my friendship rather, is based simply and solely on we like to play in the jungle gym together, well, once that fades away, that's the end of it, right? And if your friendship with somebody is based on, well, we'd like to go to bars every night and drink and chase around and well, okay, but most likely that's going to fade away too, right? So if we're going to have a lasting friendship, Aristotle thought it has to be based on some lasting characteristic. So level one friendships for Aristotle are going to have a kind of fragility to them. And the same thing is true of a level two friendship, what Aristotle called a friendship of utility. And a friendship of utility is a little bit like a business deal. So I do something for you, you do something for me, and we kind of have this exchange and our friendship is based on that exchange. But a friendship of utility, Aristotle pointed out, is itself extremely unstable because what's useful shifts and changes over time. So I remember when I was in high school, um, I was the first uh, guy in my class, or second guy in my class to get a driver's license. So I had my driver's license all sophomore year. I could drive in a car and I had all these friends Hey, Kayser, let's go here. Let's do this. Hanging out with all these people. And then junior year, they all got licenses. They all got cars. And I never heard from them again. They were like gone. What happened to all these friends of mine, quote unquote? Right? I wasn't useful anymore. So a friendship of utility is like that, right? And if your friendship is based simply on, oh, this person helps me get through the physics course. They're really good at physics. Well, once the course is over, 
that's the end of the friendship, right? So friendships of utility, Aristotle thought, tended to be unstable. And also, Aristotle said, they tended to be uh, likely to end in conflicts. Because again, if you, have a, if you have basically a business relationship with someone, but then you have no contract, you can see how both sides might be like, hey, I didn't get enough out of this, right? I want more out of this. And the other person's like, what are you talking about? I'm giving more, more than your fair share. And there's a kind of inherent likelihood of conflict there. But Aristotle thought there was another kind of friendship, which he called friendship of virtue or friendship of excellence. And in a friendship of excellence, the friendship is based on what is a good characteristic about this other person. So this other person is wise. This person is courageous. This person is temperate. This person is just. The, this person has the virtues. And virtues for Aristotle are these habits that we gain through repeated action. I can only become courageous if I repeatedly do acts of courage. And I become temperate through repeatedly doing acts of temperance. And so what this does is build up a habit in me. And, this, and because habits take a while to build up, habits are these long-lasting characteristics. So if I really have these good habits, there's something lasting, lastingly good about me. So if our friendship is based on that, that you are a terrific person, you are a totally wonderful person, and I am too, and our friendships, I appreciate who you are. I don't, yes, you're fun to be around. We have a friendship of pleasure. That's part of it, sort of. Yes, you're useful, because if you have all the virtues, you'll be quite useful, right? If you need to be driven to the airport, the person's going to be there on time and drive you to the airport. So the person's useful. But what you really like about the person isn't so much the fun times you have together. You do like that, and they are fun. And it isn't so much the utility they give you. Yeah, they are useful. They, they're a person of their word. But what you really like is them. Right? You like them. They are a great person. And they like you for the same reason. And if you're both great people, that's going to be the kind of thing that is a lasting characteristic. So you can be friends at 20 and 30 and 40 and 50 and all the way through your life. Because both of you are virtuous people. Aristotle thought that friendship involved shared activity, right? So if you're a friend of virtue, you're going to share that activity and you're going to share an emotional life with the person, right? You're going to enjoy the same things and you'll be saddened at the same things. Aristotle's idea of friendship, though, stopped short of what Aquinas thought. So in many ways, Aquinas follows Aristotle, but in this way and some others, he totally disagreed. Excuse me, he totally disagreed. Aristotle thought that friendship between a human being and a god was impossible. That you could never be friends with divinity because divinity is just too far above us. And Aquinas agrees. He thinks that God is far above us and that we could never become friends with God on our own initiative any more than I could become friends with a pope or a president or a prime minister on my own initiative, right? I mean, if I wrote to the prime minister of England, it's like, hey, I want to be friends. I don't think that would go too far, right? Maybe it would. Maybe he'd write back and be like, yeah, that's, that's great. Let's hang out. But probably not, right? So if I'm going to be friends with a pope or a president or a prime minister, the initiative has to be on that person's side. But even that same point is even more true for God. But that's exactly what Aquinas thinks happened. He thinks that God took the initiative, that God made himself present, first through the history of Israel, various interventions, the burning bush, calling of Abraham, but in the most radical and complete way in Jesus of Nazareth. God became one of us. And so we're able to commune with God. We're able to see God and hear God. Those that walked with Jesus did see and hear God, Aquinas thought. And we too have a chance to see and hear God. We don't see Jesus walking around in sandals the way he did 2,000 years ago. But Aquinas thinks we really do encounter the living God every single time we receive the sacraments. The Eucharist, as you may know, Aquinas taught is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. That's actually Jesus. Now, obviously, it doesn't look like Jesus, and Aquinas was aware of that, right? That's why he coined this term transubstantiation. The substance of the thing is transformed. 
If you put on a gorilla costume, you will appear to be a gorilla. But you're not really a gorilla. You have really, you're still a human being, even though you appear to be a gorilla. In a similar way, you'd say the appearance of bread and wine remain, but the substance, the reality of it is changed into the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. So Aquinas thought this, that there's an ongoing opportunity for everyone, not just the few people that lived in this ancient time and the few people who were actually able to touch Jesus as he walked on the earth, but for everybody, for all time. Because everybody, for all time, has access to the sacraments, at least in principle. And so all of us have, as it were, an equal opportunity to encounter the living God. So for Aquinas, friendship is possible, a friendship of virtue is possible, not simply in terms of the natural order, the level three order, you might say, but also in terms of the level four order, the order of relationship with God that's uh, on God's own initiative. And so for reasons that should be clear by now, that is for Aquinas the best kind of friendship. The friendship that we can have with God, the friendship that we can have with other people in harmony with God. So, where does that leave us? Well, that leaves us with our freedom, right? You guys are all free. You can obviously leave tonight and pursue level one happiness as much as you want. There's nothing stopping you, right? There's no law against that. We can do it. We can pursue level two as much as we want, right? We can try to get more and more money, more and more fame, more and more power. We can pursue level three as much as we want. We could try to be the best friend we can be to other people. We can try to be the best son, the best daughter, the best husband, the best wife, the best worker to those in our lives. And we can choose to accept God's invitation of level four. And the choice at the end of the day, obviously, is ours. But I do think it behooves us to think carefully about this choice. Because what we're betting is our own lives. Because at the end of the day, we're all going the same place, right? At the end of the day, we only have so many years to live, right? You maybe have 60. I probably only have about 30 left, but we only have so many years to live. And that'll be it. And we will have decided through how we live our lives whether level one view is correct, level two view is correct, level three, or level four. People say philosophy is useless. Just the opposite. Everyone has a philosophy. They may not know it. They may not talk about it. But everyone, in fact, is living either a kind of level one kind of life or a level two or a level three or a level four. They're living out a philosophy. And so I guess what I want to conclude and just say is I encourage you to think carefully about your philosophy, about your choice of life, because you only get one shot, and this is it. Thank you very much. All right, happy to entertain questions. Comments, criticisms. I'll even be happy to engage in some, oh, no, I won't say that. I was going to say in some physical altercations, but I probably shouldn't do that because there might be some advanced jujitsu people here that will strangle me and say, I don't want to do it. Yes? Um, it's kind of like a multi-level question, but how can we, and not necessarily friends and not necessarily other Christians, love other people like Christ in a society that's so obsessed with level one, level two, and almost has like a hatred or like a fear of level three and level four and this deeper connection with people. Like it's very hard to turn the other cheek and it's very hard to love these people. And I'm just curious if you have any advice, especially in like a college environment and a secular university. Yeah, that's a great question. I think you're right. It is hard to love some people because especially some people may have an animus and a bias against uh, you simply because of your faith. And I think that happens all the time. And it's really sad. But what can you do? Well, I think that one way to enhance loving others is to make a real effort and a real choice to try to see the good in others. And it, it is an effort sometimes. I mean, the worse a person is, the more of an effort you have to make to find whatever is good in that person. So let's do a little thought experiment now. Um, one of the worst people I can think of is Darth Vader. He's pretty bad. Right? (laughs) 
So what's good about Darth Vader? Let's say you have Darth Vader in your life. He's got the he's got the you know black thing on. He's killing Jedi. He's really bad. So what's good about Darth Vader? Can anyone think of anything? Okay, so at the end he sacrificed himself for his son. So that's good. That's right. He seems like a, he's good at running a Death Star. He's very, you know, he, he, he can run that, he, you know, it's hard to run a Death Star. Lots of committees and, you know, his, the orc chart's really deep, so he's really got a, you know, he's on top of it. So he's a very good administrator, it seems. Um, he sticks to his principles. I mean, he thinks he's doing the right thing. That's right. He's sticks. Kind of sense. He always thinks he's doing what he's supposed to be doing. That's right. He seems courageous, right? I mean, he's willing to fight people with lightsabers. I mean, it takes some courage to do that. He seems... Uh, Strong, physically. He seems skillful with uh, using a lightsaber and such. And he always had the potency to turn good. And that's true of everybody. Even the worst person literally walking on planet Earth right now. As long as they're alive, they still have a chance of giving up their evil ways and turning towards something good. So when we encounter people that have bias against us and dislike us, what we can do is try to seek what's good. And for instance, for many of these people, they really do care about what is just. Now, we might disagree about their vision of justice, but in their mind, they're really pursuing something that they honestly think is terrific and wonderful and making the world a better place. And again, you know, I would disagree with a lot of social justice warrior types and woke types and you know, about what really is, in fact, just and good. But there's something admirable about trying to seek justice and take a stand. And I mean, that in principle is a good thing. And for all those people, on a personal level, I think if you look, you could find things that are, that are true and good and beautiful and something really worthwhile. Minimally, the possibility that they can change and grow, which is always true as long as they're alive. But I think it takes an effort sometimes, especially if someone's very harsh and very, you know, thinks you're terrible. And uh, yeah, it takes a real effort. Um, yes? Just bouncing off of that, so does a friendship of excellence or a friendship of virtue have to be two-sided or can it just be one-sided from the person seeking to love them like Christ, like Jules was saying. Yeah, so for Aristotle, a friendship is always uh, involves mutual goodwill. So we can't be friends unless I have goodwill for you and you have goodwill back for me. So if you don't have goodwill back for me, we're not, we're not friends for him. But you could have goodwill for someone without that being reciprocated, right? So we don't have a friendship if that's true. But we can have, I can have goodwill for you even though you don't reciprocate for me. But to have friendship for Aristotle, at least it falls mutual goodwill. It can't just be one-sided. Um, sorry. Oh, sorry, yeah, yeah. Can you just yeah. repeat, repeat the questions back just for the recording? Okay, yeah. Any other questions? Yes. So you mentioned... Um, uh, but loving God requires love of neighbor. And I was wondering if you had any thoughts on how that uh, interacts or goes along with uh, what Aquinas talks about in the three orders of charity with loving God first, then, yourself, then yourself, and then your neighbor. Yeah. If those two, how those two kind of concepts go together. Yeah, so the question is, uh, Aquinas talks about uh, uh, loving God and loving neighbor as always going together, that you couldn't have real love of God and hatred of your neighbor. Uh, and the question is, well, how does that relate to Aquinas' idea that there's an order of loving, that you ought to love God the most, and then yourself, and then your neighbor? So when Aquinas talks about the order of loving, part of that involves the goodness of the thing loved. So let's say you have two people. One person is an axe murderer. The other person is Mother Teresa. Well, if you have an... Well, I... Yeah. If you have the axe murderer... There's less goodness in that person than in Mother Teresa, right? In other words, I can't appreciate, oh, Axmer, you're so kind, you're so nice, you're just amazing. Well, no, you're killing people. You're really a bad guy in terms of that. Whereas Mother Teresa, say, is kind, is nice, is helping all these people. So there's good in her 
that's lacking in the axe murder. So there's more to appreciate. And so in God, of course, there is the greatest good. So one, one relevant factor for how much you should love someone is how good they are. And basically, someone who, you know, God should be loved the most because God is maximally good. And then you have, like, amazing people that are super, you know, filled with virtue and just totally great. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have, like, you know, terrible people that are Hitler, Stalin, etc. Okay, so there's that order. The other order, though, has to do with proximity. So the basic idea here is that, say, in my case, I'm married, so I should have a special, intense love for my wife and a special, intense love for my children and then a special, intense love, but not as intense, for my students and then a love, but less intense for you know, other students at the university that aren't my students in class, but just are there. And then and even, even people that are even further away from me, you might say just people that are whatever in... Uh, I don't know, Hong Kong or something that I don't even know. So I should love everybody, but love would be a little bit like a fire. It should be brightest and warmest for those that are in your immediate circle. So it's the opposite of what Dickens called telescopic philanthropy. That's where you look through your telescope at people in whatever, you know, super far away, and you're like, I care so much about these people, you know, thousands of miles away. And then like your own brother's like, hey man, I really need help painting the house. Don't bug me. I'm busy helping these people thousands of miles away, right? So the idea is that, well, no, uh, you should help people like in your own circle, in your own, in your own life, that they're most close to you. So you can see how God would be loved the most. Why? Because God is actually the closest to you. God's closer to you than any other human being outside of yourself. God's inside of you and outside of you. God is the author of your very existence and God is the greatest good. So you can see how God would be loved the most. Next, we love ourselves by reason of proximity, not really by reason of goodness, because I may not be the best person around, but I am the closest to myself. Just like maybe my kids aren't the best kids around, but they're my kids, they're closest to me, and so I have a special responsibility for loving my own kids, even if you are a much better kid than my own daughter, I'd say. So, and then in third place would be you know, just other people. So yeah, Aquinas thinks that love has a sort of order based on the goodness of the individual loved. That's one factor. But the other factor is the proximity to, to the individual. And the proximity will, will shift depending on who you are. So if you're married, right, your spouse, you have a special obligation to love your spouse, right? You take vows, literal vows to love your spouse, right? So you have a special duty to love him or her. And then if you have kids, you have a special obligation to them because they're, they're your kids and then so forth. On the other hand, if you, let's say you're a priest or a sister, they have a more universal love. Because if you're a priest or a sister and don't have your own kids and don't have your own spouse, your love isn't so focused on, just, oh, just you know, this spouse and just these kids. Really, your love can be more universal. So everyone, in principle, could be your you know, spiritual son or daughter. And it's not so tightly limited. And it, it lends itself to a certain... Uh, radicality of love too. So like I have a Jesuit friend who was a professor with me at LMU and then he left and he went to Africa for about 10 years and he served in, in a seminary in Africa. And so I'd write to him, you know, email and stuff and he'd be like, well, things are kind of tough here. You know, the power goes out like for a week at a time. It's like, whoa, that's, that is tough. And then, you know, a few months later, he's right back. Well, yeah, things are really tough here. Sometimes uh, the food doesn't arrive, so we don't really have food. We have to, like, ration down, have, like, one meal a day. It's like, wow. He writes back a few months later. Well, yeah, things are really tough here. The water kind of goes in and out, so we have to kind of store water. Anyway, it's just like this unbelievably hard, terrible, difficult circumstance. But as a, as a priest, he could do this sort of radical act of love and go serve these people who really needed it. Where I say as a married person, I could never do that. I couldn't be like, hey, honey, we're going to pack up the kids. We're going to Africa. It looks like, you know, power shoddy and food hit or miss. But, you know, most of the time we have water at least. So let's just move there. I mean, obviously I can't do that. That'd be totally, totally inappropriate. Um, in any case, that's the answer about love. And love and God and stuff. Yes. Yeah. So with like all the abortion stuff going on right now, like where is the line for that? 
Yeah, that's a good question. So I think there are some cases in which the line is quite fuzzy and unclear. So let me use a different example of gambling. I think you could make a case that gambling is really toxic for a community and to allow, uh, I'm thinking of like casinos and stuff, to allow casinos is really going to be detrimental to the whole communal welfare. So maybe you shouldn't be allowed. On the other hand, you can also make a case that, well, you know, yes, there can be abuses and problems, but it should be allowed because people should be have the freedom, even though it's unwise maybe to gamble too much. Some people don't. and So you have these judgment cases. You have clear cases where there should not be a law. So for instance, I'm thinking of things that we ought to do, and yet it is a tremendous overreach of governmental power to force us to do that. So I'll give you an example. I think it's extremely important to make time each day for personal prayer. Like, I think it's vital, like every single day, at least 15 minutes, communicating with God, making time to pray. Now, should there be a law about that? I would oppose that law. If the government said everybody is forced to pray for 15 minutes and they're going to come arrest you if they find out you didn't pray for 15 minutes, I would say that's totally unacceptable. It's not the government's job to force us to pray even though I think it's a completely good idea. I, likewise, um, I think it's a great idea to honor your mother, right? So we, you know, on Mother's Day, we just had it, a great idea to honor your father. But should we, you know, penalize and criminalize people that don't reach out to their parents on Father's Day or Mother's Day? Well, no. On the other hand, what should we criminalize and penalize with the law? Well, I would say serious violations of justice that harm other individuals. So murder theft, assault, rape, robbery, perjury, all those are crimes that seriously affect and harm in an unjust way other individuals. So where does abortion fall? Is it more like not sending your mother a Mother's Day card or not making time to pray? Or is it more like uh, intentionally killing the innocent? Well, my view is that it is not only like intentionally killing the innocent, it actually is intentionally killing the innocent. And this is not a religious or a theological view. I think that any person of goodwill can, in principle, understand that what is at issue here is an unjust killing. So here's one argument that was brought forward by an atheist uh, named Don Marcus. And he said this. He said, look, what's wrong with killing you or me? Well, killing you or me does not take away our past, right? There's n nothing can undo that. But what happens is if you or I were killed today, we would lose our future, right? If you get killed today, you won't graduate from the University of Oregon. You won't get married and have kids. You won't have a career. If I get killed today, I'll never become a grandfather. I'll miss out on all the things I was hoping to do. So what happens when someone gets killed is they lose their chance at a valuable future. But the very same principle applies to killing a newborn baby or to killing a human being prior to birth. If you kill a newborn baby or kill a human being prior to birth, you're taking away his or her chance at a valuable future, right? They won't be going to kindergarten. They won't be graduating from college. They won't be getting married. They won't be becoming grandparents. They lose their chance at a valuable future. So this is not a theological thing akin to, uh, say, the belief that we ought to make time to pray. This is a matter of fundamental justice, that all human beings deserve to be treated with basic fundamental justice, basic fundamental respect, and basic human rights. And the most basic of all human rights is the right to live. And the reason I say it's the most basic is if someone takes away my right to live, they also have suppressed my right to vote, right? Because if I'm dead, I can't vote anymore. They also have taken away my right to free speech because if I'm dead, I can't say anything anymore. They've taken away all my other rights. So the right to live is the basic fundamental right. It's like the foundation of the house. And so the law ought to protect and respect all human beings, not just some. As you know, in our history, sometimes the law has divided up human beings into those human beings who deserve fundamental respect and protection and those human beings that do not deserve fundamental respect and protection. So this happened, for instance, in our country with the terrible Dred Scott decision where the Supreme Court said, in, if my memory serves, a 72 decision, that African Americans don't deserve fundamental respect. They're not fully, quote unquote, persons. 
And in another 7-2 decision, Roe versus Wade, the Supreme Court made a similar uh, outcome to say that human beings prior to birth don't count as persons. But even so, the court is inconsistent because, as you may know, in American law, sometimes human beings prior to birth do count as persons. Even in California, there's a famous case of a woman named Lacey Peterson who was pregnant and got murdered. And her husband was charged and convicted of double murder. Murder of his wife, Lacey, and murder of Connor, their unborn son. So the law, even, even after Roe, still, outside of abortion, does recognize the dignity and rights of human beings prior to birth. So what we have now is an inconsistency uh, in the law, and what we have now is a fundamental injustice, where one class of human beings is excluded from fundamental rights and protections. Yes? That's a good question. So the question is, do I agree with Aquinas that prostitution should be legal? Um, I'll have to say this. I, my intuition is to say uh, that I disagree with Aquinas. I think it should be illegal. But I haven't studied Aquinas' arguments, nor have I studied the empirical evidence on um, you know, the effects of prostitution. My best guess is that it's quite detrimental, to, obviously, to the people that are prostitutes and also for the people that use the prostitutes. But yeah, I have to confess I'm not really well-schooled in the empirical evidence, you know, about those things. So, so I guess my intuition or my hunch is that it should be illegal, but I really don't have firm empirical data to, to back that up. Um, yes? What about the use of, like, narcotics and stuff like that or hard drugs that are illegal? I mean, clearly mm-hmm. the war on drugs and like, that's the most effective thing we've ever done. Yeah. Yeah, that's another question that I haven't studied carefully enough. So um, in the very little reading I've done on that topic, from what I understand, for instance, when marijuana is legalized in a state, that, 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 that legalization ends up increasing use, from, for instance, among uh, minors and, and children, because you have much more widespread use of it. And then, you know, when mom and dad have their marijuana around, then, you know, 14-year-olds get into it and start using it. And is that detrimental? Yeah, as far as I know, I, I think all available empirical evidence indicates that especially drug use for you know, children is very detrimental to their proper uh, mental and physical development. So is that outweighed by um, the detrimental effects that come from having these drug laws? I, I don't know. I don't know. I get it. Like, on a question like that, I would want to study more carefully before I really said anything, because I don't really have a firm view, other than what I just said, that I, I do, as far as I know, there are these effects of legalization that tend to be detrimental, especially for, for children. And so I think, well, I think society has a serious role in protecting children from these adverse effects. But yeah, I haven't said it carefully, so I guess I'll, I want to punt on that question. Yes? Um, with egotistical satisfaction, it almost seems like there seems to me that there are two kinds of satisfaction. There's the personal satisfaction and kind of an outside affirmation. Yeah. So for example, when you pub- when you're a professor, when you publish a book, there's the personal satisfaction of producing a work of scholarship. Right. Enjoy. And then there's the satisfaction of your department chair giving you a pat on the back. Right. What people say how uh, great your work is. Now, is this a real difference or is there is it just a kind of how it's the same the same um, effort, but just two different uh, ways of experience. Yeah, so the, the distinction you're drawing, I think, if I understand you correctly, has been talked about by Alistair McIntyre in his book, After Virtue. And the way he talks about it, and see if this tracks what you're saying, he talks about it as the distinction between goods internal to a practice versus goods external to a practice. So his example is chess. So there's certain goods inherent in playing chess well. There's a kind of analytical and creative uh, skill in being really good at chess. And those kinds of skills and that kind of excellence is intrinsic to playing chess. On the other hand, there are goods external to the practice. Like say we play chess and I say, hey, if you do really well, I'll pay you $100 if you beat me. 
right? Or if you do really well, you'll get this big chess trophy. Well, that's a good external to playing chess. And there's no, there's no essential relationship to getting a trophy and playing chess. As you might get a trophy for playing soccer, you might get a trophy just because I give you a trophy. There's no real relationship there. Whereas you can't have the goods internal to being excellent at chess other than through being excellent at chess. That's the only way you get that, the goods internal to that practice. Any other questions? Yes, sir. Uh, could you elaborate on loving the image of God within others, uh, especially as opposed to like loving, say, the, the ego in others? Yeah, could I elaborate on loving the image of God in others uh, as opposed to loving the, the ego of others? So when we're talking about Darth Vader, the idea I was trying to get at is all human beings have some good things. Now, you might have to look for them. But if Aquinas is right, one thing that all human beings have in common would be that all human beings are made in the image and likeness of God. And so in some way, they reflect who God is. And you can think of that in terms of every human being having reason and will, at least in potency, if not in actuality. So if that's true, you could say, well, that is something good about being a human being that would be shared by all human beings and not shared, say, by plants. So plants have goods that we don't have. Plants can do photosynthesis. Human beings can't do that. So you might appreciate and love that about a plant, that it can do photosynthesis. But that's not, you know, when you're talking about human beings, obviously that's not something we do. What's distinctive about us as rational animals is, you know, our reason and our will. So that, those would be the distinctive parts uh, that could be appreciated in any human being. Thank you very much, Professor Tazor, for giving this awesome talk, and thank you all for your awesome questions. Um, if you'd like to get involved with us, please feel free to talk to uh, myself or Leo and Allison right there if you'd like to get involved in the Tennessee Institute. And if you're interested about that study abroad program in Rome, feel free to talk to them as well. We have flyers right here. And uh, let's give one final round of applause for Professor Christopher. Thank you.